Welcome, sisters, brothers, and siblings, to our auditory celebration of the human experience. This is a podcast where two siblings indulge their curiosities into topics known and yet unknown, and make personal insights to bring you a little context. Episode 14, Pottery. Hello and welcome to A Little Context, the brother-sister podcast where two folks try to unravel a litany of topics. My name is Matt. My name is Devin. And today is a beautiful day. It really is. I am excited to get outside. As am I. So we're going to go through this episode. We are going to take our time with it, but we're hoping that we can do this efficiently for our own sake, so... (laughs) <laughs> what do you say, Devin? Let's try to make this smooth so we don't have to do too many edits later. Okay. All right. Today we are talking about a broad topic that we're going to narrow it down a little bit. It's one that I'm personally very fascinated by, and that subject is pottery. And you and I have some experience with pottery. When we were kids, there was a place called the Easton Clayworks, which is really awesome place that just works with clay. And I remember making clay lizards and roses and little trinkets. But my absolute favorite piece that I made was a whistle that was kind of in the shape of a teapot. It wasn't really in the shape of a teapot, but that's kind of what it looked like. That was my favorite thing. I don't know what happened to it. It's been lost through the years. I I wonder, I, I think I remember that growing up living in a little display case next to like fine wine glasses and other interesting pieces that were handcrafted. Do you remember that? Yeah, in the uh, dining room. That's the one. It could still be there. (laughs) I'm not sure. I know that I, I have actually, back when I was living in that house in college and I had free reign to do whatever I wanted, basically, we moved that furniture piece probably two or three times. Oh, okay. (laughs) So we took everything out and put it back in again and rearranged it. And uh, I I can't remember if we found a forever home for it or if the last time I was there, it was still in the same place with the same stuff inside. Maybe. And I remember the Clayworks. Yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, I had such a good time there. I mean, it it made your hands really dry, (laughs) but it was so much fun. And you got to get dirty and make something. And it was such a cool space. Everything was hard wood. It's like this uh, this big studio classroom kind of universal space. And there's a little room in the back that had a bathtub just filled with clay. And you just take chunks out and work with it. I was uh, I was too little to really effectively work with the clay like uh, like you were able to, Devin. But I still had a lot of good times in there. And I... The one thing that I, I loved about it and would love to get back in there to, to experience was the smell. It had this beautiful, earthy smell. Yeah. Yes, it did. What a cool place. I had a, a, a different connection with pottery than you, and I think I started appreciating it a lot later when I was in community college. At the community college on this podcast, we've made references to the gardening club that I joined, and that introduced me to a cool bunch of 
people who are into really working with the earth and making it useful in a lot of ways just to grow the food that we can eat. But they also had this program going on where they were taking clay from the campus grounds, using it to make pottery, mostly mugs and simple pieces. And then they hand built a kiln that they would fire these clay pieces in. And they would sell the pieces at the weekly farmer's market, which they had on Wednesdays. And I bought this mug that I loved because it could fit like a cup and a half of coffee in it. So I would pour myself a lot of coffee in the morning, get to school and just drink it out of this cool, handmade, very earthen looking mug. It it was just very simple on the outside. It was mostly just exposed brown clay, but around the lip in the inside of the mug, it had this nice glaze that was kind of coppery. It had some greens and some, uh, some copper colors in it. It was a little iridescent. It was just this cool thing. And I told you a story about this where I was on Facebook a while ago, back when I still had a Facebook. I've since deleted mine. But I was going back and reviewing photos of my old friends from community college, and I found one where I was like in the middle surrounded by all of these people that I knew and loved and I was holding the mug in the picture and my immediate response was man I miss that mug (laughs) I love that I miss the people too but when I looked at that photo I was like ah I I was I relived the moment when I had driven to school I think I'd finished the coffee and the mug like was just sitting on the passenger side seat next to me and it had rolled over and like got caught between the seat and the door and I went over I think that's also where I had my backpack on in like the passenger footwell I opened the door and I watched the mug roll out land on the ground and split into three pieces making it effectively useless it was just shards of ceramic and I was devastated (laughs) that was a very sad day for me I think I brought the the pieces with me like into the school building where my friends and I would hang out and I just like put them on a table and looked at them for like 10 minutes and didn't do anything else. <laughs> Man. But then I bought another mug and everything was fine. <laughs> <laughs> I have too many mugs. No such thing. Oh man. I only <laughs> use two of them. Yeah. But when you have friends over, you give them <laughs> options, you know? <laughs> So, we're going to get into pottery. Yes. First things first is we need a definition. So, this is a definition of pottery used by the American Society for Testing and Materials. Pottery is all fired ceramic wares that contain clay when formed. There are some exceptions to this, mostly when it's used in industrial... (laughs) What was the word? Manufacturing. Yeah, for manufacturing purposes, processes that might refine a different substance or an item like it's not pottery if it's you know shards or specifically formed pieces of fired clay that are like a part of a machine that smooths something out or something like that that's not pottery pottery is something that you'd put on display or use to hold water or something else uh something you know reusable and the purpose of the item is to be the item itself Right. For today's discussion, pottery is going to mean just vessels, vessels only. All right. There are different types of pottery. There is earthenware, 
which is also known as terracotta, which is that reddish clay that you see used in flower pots. And that's fired at the lowest temperature. That's, well, I say low. It's <laughs> 1745 <laughs> to 2012 degrees Fahrenheit. Come on. You're going to have to pump up the heat if you want to impress me. <laughs> So then slightly hotter is stoneware, which is the most durable. And you can do that mid-fire at 2150 to 2260 degrees Fahrenheit. And then there's high fire at 2200 to 2336 degrees Fahrenheit. All right, we're getting there. Porcelain, which also counts as pottery, is the most delicate and it's most common in tea sets. And that's fired at... 3,272 degrees Fahrenheit. That is hot. That's the hot stuff right there. The porcelain. Correct me if I'm wrong. Porcelain is often referred to as fine china. You know, yeah. China is a little... Or or at least what fine china is. Yeah, fine china is porcelain. Okay. It's like a square rectangle situation. Okay. All china is porcelain, but not all porcelain is china. That makes sense. I can't remember if that mug that I had was earthenware or stoneware. I think there were some limitations with the kiln that they used to fire it, so it may have been earthenware, which is why it broke so easily. It only felt like eight inches. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would guess. I mean, stoneware probably also would break. You don't know that. You're right, I don't. I mean, I don't know that either. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... Making pottery takes a lot of practice. When I think about pottery, the first thing that comes to mind is this story that I was told in high school. I took some art classes in high school, and one of my favorite teachers told this story. And it was taken from Art and Fear by David Bales and Ted Orland. And it's about quantity versus quality. A pottery teacher splits a class into two, and tells them that half of the class is going to be graded on quantity, as many pots as you can, and then the other half of the room will be graded on quality, whoever has the most perfect piece. Right. So they go on through this class. They find that the half of the room that had to do quantity ends up with the best pots because you got a lot of practice. You got to figure it out. You can make mistakes. You're, you're more forgiving with yourself. So practice makes perfect. I just like that story. <laughs> I like that story too. It's a, a great lesson in developing skills and not being so hard on yourself. I think the other side of the, that story was that the class that was being graded based on the quality of one piece, that they were working on just one piece, were hindered by the amount of pressure that they put on themselves to make that one piece as good as it could be. And that, uh, I think the term would be myopia, is when you're, you're just observing one factor. They're just looking at this one pot. If they don't get it right, then it doesn't work. So they're just trying to get this, this one pot to work. The other people were making as many as they could. And I think there was still like a quality grade, like maybe it had to fit certain criteria. It needed to be an acceptable pot. So they were just working on their techniques to make a pot as quickly and efficiently as they could. And in effect, they were seeing what worked, you know, is is more curious and more explorational than pressure driven. Yeah, I need to remember that more. (laughs) 
Yeah, do as much of the stuff that you like doing as you can, and you'll get better. Early pottery was hand-shaped pottery by pinching and coiling the clay. We didn't have, like, what I picture is the pottery wheel. We didn't Mm -hmm. have that to begin with. So we would pinch and coil the clay to create these primitive pieces. So the the pinching and coiling, did that create like a particular aesthetic effect? I'm imagining it looking like a single kind of, oh, what's the word? Like a, a rod of clay that's been coiled around itself to create some kind of like a basket. Does that sound right? Yeah. I I mean, it sounds right. I don't know how much we, well, I'm sure we do know what it looked like. Yeah. (laughs) We (laughs) know. That's how we figured out what it was. It's like, all right, this is what it looks like. Yeah, we could probably make our own. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it probably didn't look as pretty as pottery today, but it was functional and that is what we needed. So. Yeah. I'm happy that we did it. <laughs> the earliest method for firing this pottery was to use bonfires. And because it was really low temperature fires, a low quality red clay was fine. That terracotta we were talking about, that's the mm-hmm. low temperature. That's what we were making our pottery out of. They were often tempered with sand, grit, crushed shell, or crushed pottery which would restrain shrinkage while drying and reduce the risk of cracking. There was this uh, this additive that they were using then to almost fortify the clay that they were using. It's this terracotta. It's relatively you know, brittle. But when you add these other factors, it helps retain its structural form. So that's very cool that they're they're adding things to engineer a stronger piece of pottery very and early on. S- super innovative. Yeah. I love it. Um, The potter's wheel then was invented sometime between 6,000 and 4,000 BC. It's that old. And it was invented in Mesopotamia. So I put a note in here to give some perspective. The Epic of Gilgamesh was written around 2100 BC, meaning that we had the potter's wheel somewhere between two and four thousand years before we had written stories. The Epic of Gilgamesh is, of course, the the first known written story uh, that was actually etched in cuneiform. We were able to figure out what it said when we translated the Rosetta Stone. Now, for perspective, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is somewhere between two thousand and four thousand years younger than the Potter's Wheel is roughly 1,500 years older than the Torah, which, to put in perspective, is older than the Bible. (laughs) So we've got the Bible is the youngest, then it's the Torah, then it's the Epic of Gilgamesh, and then the potter's wheel is oldest. Yes. I'd say the potter's wheel is the least interesting read out of all those. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they are all huge contributors to culture. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. Uh, So we talked about how it was pinched and coiled. We talked about how it was fired. And now, if if you've ever done pottery, you know that typically it's fired in a kiln these days. And the earliest kilns were just holes in the ground, which provided insulation and resulted in better control of firing the clay and probably more temperature too people are smart yeah that that's 
as a huge innovation. Yeah. And the kilns we have today, I never really thought about it just because I'd, I'd looked at them and some of them just look like these uh, big barrels that are made out of, uh, I don't know what you would call it. It's like also a clay or a stone material, you know? You know yeah, what? I know what you're talking about, but I, I actually don't know what it is. Modern kilns. It could for just pottery. be cement. It could just be cement. I really love the way they look because it has this uh, this stony, earthy material for insulation, and then this chrome metal that is very industrial looking, where you can enter in your controls and the temperature that you want it to fire at. It's neat, but that's not what human beings started with. We. Uh, we 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 had to figure kilns out uh, before we figured out electronic control pads, you know. <laughs> right. Building a kiln into the ground is uh, how they made the kiln that that fired my favorite mug, which is, as we mentioned before, no longer with us. Um, <laughs> but it's neat. These uh, traditions carry through. They still track. They still work. The old methods still work. We have the new ones, but but the old the old is still strong. I think that's one of the cool things about pottery is kind of like plastic. It doesn't degrade. It's one of the best materials for archaeologists to determine uh, human activity throughout the uh, the millennia. Uh, and here we have a story that's about the invention of pottery and uh, working theory. So this comes from an article titled, Swiss Archaeologist Digs Up West Africa's Past, which is a case study on pottery that was dug up in an archaeological study. So the theory is that pottery was invented and developed in several different regions around the world, completely independent of each other. At the time of this article, which was written in 2007, the only area where similar pottery and arrowheads were found as old as those in West Africa are in Siberia, China, and Japan. Now, this Swiss archaeologist named Eric Hoyasakam played a very important role in developing this theory back in the early 2000s. Between 2002 and 2005, he and his team found six ceramic fragments in central Mali, which at first were just kind of neat, to him, uh, which means he just kept them in his desk drawer for years. <laughs> he had no idea how special these fragments of pottery actually were. And the reason he didn't know how old these fragments were is because they didn't have the proper equipment to test the ceramics. In a way, they didn't test the ceramics. To determine their age, what the team tested was the sediment within the vessels. And they found that the sediment was around 11,400 years old, <laughs> dating back to 9,400 BC. So this is a pottery that predates the, the potter's wheel. Yeah, by a lot. By a bit, like 3,000 years, right? Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> You're impressed easily. Uh, yeah. That's a joke. That is super cool. It is really friggin' old and really friggin' cool. Most ancient ceramics from the Middle East are around 10,000 years old, making this junk almost 2,000 years older than what we previously thought was the oldest pottery in the region. 
This was one part of a project which launched in 1997 and is credited for making numerous discoveries about ancient stone-cutting techniques and tools and other important findings that shed light on human development in the region. Hoysakam, the aforementioned leader of this project, believes that pottery was invented in West Africa as a part of human adaptation to climate change. 11,400 years ago was about the time that the area changed from desert to grassland, and it is believed that humans invented pottery as a tool to meet their food needs in a changing environment. Around the same time, they also found arrowheads, which I found very cool. So not only did they have to adapt and create pottery for their food needs, but they also had to change their hunting methods at the same time. Pottery was an innovation that made so much of how we handle and obtain our food more efficient. And it's one of those technological advancements that we don't think of as being high tech. But at the time, the amount of ingenuity and the time to test and see what it's like to light dirt on fire and what happens, and then you're like, okay, I can use this, has to be one of the coolest developments that an animal has ever done, you know? Yeah. It's so cool. Yeah. This is a reminder that, you know, the human beings that invented pottery were just as smart as we are, but we're we're also animals, and most of the time, we're pretty dumb. So I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Just based on my own ability to come up with stuff, would I have been able to come up with pottery on my own? Um, doubtful. <laughs> it's, it's neat. <laughs> I love it. So we talked about some old pottery, and now I want to talk about some new pottery and mm. new artwork. So Ai Weiwei is an artist who collected ancient pottery and converted them into contemporary art pieces. Some people thought this was great. They thought it was collaborating with ancient artists. And other people believed that it was misappropriating ancient artists' intentions. In all reality, it's probably a little bit of both. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, I think ancient artists' intentions are a little hard to uh, pin down, yeah. for one thing. But I don't think that people expect their artwork to last for 2,000 years. Maybe they do. If your artwork lasts 2,000 years and somebody else picks it up, do you think that you'd be more or less chill about them using it for their own stuff? I think I'd be dead. I think I'd be dead, too. I would be really, <laughs> really chill about it. I would be... <laughs> I, don't think I, would, uh, I don't think I would get upset. <laughs> Um, so a little bit more about Ai Weiwei. He is known for his poetry, sculptures, photographs, and public works, including documentaries. And he is an activist whose work highlights Chinese political and social issues. That is intense bravery. Yes, it is. To criticize China as a Chinese artist, that takes a lot of uh, what I like to call characteristic boldness. And uh, I think this guy's got no shortage of characteristic boldness. I like that. Thank you. So we're going to talk about one piece in particular, and it is a three-panel photograph. And the first photograph, Ai Weiwei is holding a Han Dynasty urn. Now how old is this urn? It's around 2,000 years old. That's old. That's old. That's like Jesus old. Yeah. 
In the second panel, Ai Weiwei has his hands in the air and the urn is suspended at around knee level. And then in the third panel, Ai Weiwei still has his hands up and the urn is completely smashed on the ground. Remember, this is a Han Dynasty urn. This cannot be replaced by the artist who, after 2,000 years... Um, I mean, are they are they still alive? How are they doing? I haven't, like, I w- Yes, up. he is still alive. Oh, I was talking about the guy that made the urn. Oh! <laughs> are they in the news? Are they doing okay? Yeah. <laughs> this This is not a piece that can be replaced. Yeah, and as you can imagine, this caused some controversy... It's very upsetting to see. It's a it's a piece of history. It's a true relic. There's something kind of like refreshing about it to me. I don't know how I could explain it. I I kind of get it. It but it's like um for me it's like I'm walking home from school and it was rough cuz my backpack's really heavy. Uh and now it just got lighter, but it's because somebody stole my laptop, you know? <laughs> like that's what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel conflicted about it. So to create this photo series, Ai Weiwei broke not only one Han Dynasty urn, but two. And unfortunately, one was not caught on camera. Yeah. It's a very visceral piece of photography. I got to say that. Yeah. it's it, it. There's something different when you watch a video of something and you see it happen in real time. And then seeing the stills of the event side by side. And you can see the motion, but it, it hasn't happened yet. At the same time, it happened long ago. It already happened. There's no going back, but we still see it in its final moment. The final seconds of it being intact, suspended in midair. Yeah, it's that moment just before. It's wild. One of the articles that I read about this, the author of the article indicated quite nicely that in making this piece, that Han Dynasty urn is actually more preserved than it was before. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. They said it a lot better than I did, but it's now preserved forever. I think we're going to give this a little more context. In a way, kind of like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it died for our sins. Um, what? <laughs> It made sense to me in my head. Then it came out of my mouth. I think it still makes sense a little bit because it's making a statement. Because it's 2,000 years old? Well, that too. That's the other thing it has in common with Jesus Christ. (laughs) Um, But it is is a statement piece that serves to remind us of the, the value of this kind of relic, this artifact. That without this photo series, we can very easily forget that some things are worth preserving and worth keeping in our consciousness in the back of our heads. And it might not be as impactful as what the Han Dynasty did, all the impacts that it had, but it represents a time when people were alive and people were making decisions and culture was being formed. When we look at these photos of this one urn, this urn catches our attention. And this is like now the celebrity urn of all of its urn friends. What we are observing is a lesson. So I, I don't know if we mentioned this before, that this, this piece serves to remind us of the evils of the Mao Zedong regime. 
Right, exactly. So Ai Weiwei's mission in this piece was to get us talking about the erasure of culture. And he's done just that. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about the Mao Zedong regime as it informs this piece. Sure. So Mao Zedong was in power of the Chinese Communist Party from 1935 until 1976. He is credited as one of the most influential and controversial political figures of the 20th century. And his reforms, quote unquote, according to Britannica, often had disastrous consequences for China's people and economy. He took theory from Marxism, Leninism, and Stalinism, and he's famous for creating famine, state-controlled media, and the one-party system within China. These were done through China's first five-year plan, which was 1953 to 1957, the Great Leap Forward from 1958 to 1960, where it's estimated 70 million to 100 million people died of famine, and also the Cultural Revolution from 1966 to 1976, which we'll get into more. But Matt, you said something uh, yesterday in preparation. You said that Mao Zedong's death count outstrips Hitler and Stalin combined. Yes. That's wild to me. That is true. I, the 70 million to 100 million, I think those are the numbers. It might be, I think it might be more than that. That is an incredible amount of death and devastation to individual families who were making a lot of decisions. A lot of this was the famine where they were making poor agricultural decisions. And they were getting rid of tools to provide the state with, I think it was steel. A lot of it was going to waste. It was poorly executed, and it resulted in a lot of failure. One of the the comments I made as well is that the Mao Zedong regime's decision-making often had disastrous consequences for China's people and economy. I don't think the word disastrous really does it justice. This was a hard and horrible time to live in China in many ways. Though there were some some strengths to it, too. There, there are some people who celebrate the Mao Zedong regime to this day, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But the, the amount of destruction is, in a lot of ways, immeasurable. A lot of that destruction was carried out by Mao's Red Guards. I'm taking this information from a 1972 article by Juliana Pennington Heaslet that goes into more detail about the function and purpose of Mao's Red Guards. So when the Red Guards were initially formed, a lot of them were young rebels, quote unquote, and they went around China and destroyed ancient relics as a part of the Cultural Revolution in order to get rid of the four olds. And those are old ideas, old customs, old culture, and old habits of mind. Mao has a direct quote, which Ai Weiwei used as his inspiration for that three-panel piece, and it is, the only way of building a new world is by destroying the old one. And that is what the three-panel photograph is capturing. We destroy this pottery. We're destroying the old world, which some may call obsolete, but many others would say is a part of our human history and development and culture. But these young rebels were taught that the four olds were hurting the ability for China to make progress. 
and they were given the direction to travel around the country. All these kids needed to gain free transportation all around China was a school ID and a red armband, indicating they would follow the ideas and the leadership of the Red Guard. What they destroyed was a lot of stuff, and they also beat up a lot of old people because they held what they would believe are, are outdated beliefs. They also chastised and harassed people for wearing what they saw as Western-style clothing. This period of unbridled destruction only lasted about a year, but the damage done in that time is irreversible. Kind of like we saw with that 2,000-year-old Han Dynasty urn being smashed on the ground. Ai Weiwei, he controlled that situation very, very closely. He had to destroy two, but it served its purpose. Yeah, and where he destroyed two urns, the Red Guards destroyed far, far more. And that's that's what he's illustrating. They destroyed as much as they could. Yeah. This is a common trend in authoritarian regimes. Um, in World War II, very famously, Nazis confiscated art and stockpiled them in bunkers and things like that. They, they did everything they could to debase modern artists who were developing culture in Germany. The destruction of human creativity is very much in line with this, what we're talking about today, and the, and the erasure of human culture. So I, I took this quote from an article from 2016, which spoke a lot about the rise of neo-Maoism in China. And there, are, like I said, there are a lot of people who remember Mao fondly and would like to see China return to its ways and how it functioned when Mao was in power. And here's a quote describing that phenomenon. Part of Mao's surging popularity is due to very real achievements. Even some of his staunchest critics admire how he ended more than a century of weakness and colonial domination by Japan and the West. He also oversaw a period in which life expectancy in China nearly doubled and literacy and women's rights improved dramatically. But nostalgia for the Mao era also reflects the fact that younger Chinese have never been taught the whole story. The Cultural Revolution, Great Leap Forward, and 1989 Tiananmen Massacre are some of the many topics forbidden in Chinese classrooms. Academics say it is effectively impossible to publish anything other than sanitized hagiographies of Mao, while state media-produced TV shows focus on the heroic revolutionary period before he came to power. That's so scary and dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you. In the United States, we're currently faced with a threat to make certain topics forbidden. Effective pushes to ban the teaching of critical race theory are posing threats to our educators. I'm basing my following statements on information in an Ed Week article from May 2021. People supporting the ban are doing so to ensure that white students don't feel like they're under scrutiny for the things their grandparents may have done. And the only way to prevent this is to avoid talking about the bad things white people have done throughout American history. The ban would make topics like the Trail of Tears, 
Jim Crow and the civil rights movement effectively impossible to teach because it would be impossible to present them without discussing the systematic underpinnings and written legal policies that made them possible. It would effectively serve as a ban for those topics and others that make white people look bad. The same way that the great leap forward in the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre made Mao look bad. Teachers where CRT, critical race theory, has been banned from classrooms already exist in fear of being harassed by toxic parents and ill-intentioned community members who want to threaten the careers of our educators. The widespread ignorance about the failings of Mao has led to the rise of neo-Maoist movements around China, which could easily lead to the repetition of the worst parts of his regime. Now here, in our backyard, we're setting ourselves up to repeat the most embarrassing chapters in our country's history books because we've deemed them too embarrassing to keep them in the history books. The way I think of this is that through education, we are shaping the lives of our young people. And if we shape them poorly or carelessly and fire them at high temperatures, we'll just have broken porcelain fragments of people. <laughs> and that's not the legacy that I want to leave. That's not the, I like that's, the imagery. Thank you. That's what I'm worried about when it when it comes to this kind of thing is that, that we are shaping our lives and we're shaping our communities through the use of education. If we shy away from the factors that we need to work on and we never work on them, those will remain points of weakness that can be pressed to an easy breaking point. And uh, that's it's just not my idea of strength. No. And I mean, very famously, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Mm -hmm. And if we're actively trying to erase our history, we're just speeding up the process. Absolutely. So instead of actively erasing culture, I urge you all to go out and contribute and make some pottery because <laughs> maybe in 2000 years, someone will smash it to pieces and it'll be really famous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or maybe like three months after you make it, somebody will smash it to pieces when they open their car door and they'll be like disappointed because they loved it. They'll love it at first. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes things happen. That's just life. There's a lot to learn from. <laughs> yeah, but either way, you're contributing to your culture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love this subject. I love this episode, preparing for it and uh, getting in touch with this factor of human life and culture and, and history. I had a great time. Thank you all for uh, joining us and listening along. I hope you had just as good of a time as I did. Yes, thank you. And thank you, Matt. You did a wonderful job. Uh, you did, too. I'd say <laughs> most of this was... Uh, spurred from research that you had done so thank you for for setting that in motion and i had i i learned so we went into this and we're like all right we're gonna learn about pottery and then we ended up learning like a ton about mal i did not see that coming. <laughs> i know <laughs> that was definitely my fault but <laughs> no it wasn't <laughs> it's was just a natural progression i think that i i pushed for the history angle very early on, and then uh, that piece of history just just kind of popped up as being the most prominent. But let's let's not uh, let's not pat ourselves on the back too much. Uh, let's start patting all of you listening at home on the back again with uh, with some more gratitude and some more opportunities to hear from us. My name is Matt Hogan. If you want to follow me on Twitter, my handle is at spicy Hogan. 
If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email us. Uh, the address is mgmt at littlecontext.com. We love hearing from listeners, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a great way to engage. I think, honestly, we, we haven't been getting enough of it. Just send us an email and make us feel loved. <laughs> uh, anything to And add? my name is... De- Sorry. My name is Devin. <laughs> That's it. Let's let's try that again. My bad. <laughs> no, no, you're good. No, seriously, let's try that again. <laughs> My name is Devin. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> uh, Also, uh, rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you're listening to the show. Spread the word to friends who you think might like it. Uh, And more than anything, just have a great day. Just enjoy, enjoy the day. Thanks again for listening. We love you. Smooches. Bye.